0: Hello and Bienvenido San Antonio. Welcome to the Alamo Hour, discussing the people, places, and passion that make our city. My name is Justin Hill, a local attorney, a proud San Antonian, and keeper of chickens and bees. On the Alamo Hour, you'll get to hear from the people that make San Antonio great and unique and the best kept secret in Texas. We're glad that you're here. Okay, welcome to the Alamo Hour. This is episode 11 and I've got Michael Watts. On the podcast today, Michael is a trial lawyer. Over the past 25 or so years, I'm guessing now, Michael. We're like 30. Okay, 30. <laughs> well, you got out early. Michael's been at the forefront of many areas of litigation uh, on a national stage, Ford Firestone, all the stuff you see on TV. Have you been hurt by this drug? He's been involved in a lot of those. He's really been kind of one of the few players on a national level for a long time regarding a lot of national torts. So, for, what, for our city, that means a lot of things. We've got one of the biggest lawyers in America here, officing here with us, protecting our rights. And I wanted to get him on here to talk about a few things. It's really important timing, and I bugged him about the important timing. Atlantic Monthly just did an article on Michael. It's the 10-year anniversary of the BP blowout, which... We're going to get into this, but that had so many implications on you as a human, you as a lawyer, and everything else. So we're going to talk about that, but I wanted to get you on here, talk about being a lawyer on some of the biggest stages, talk about being indicted by the feds, talk about what you learned in those scenarios, and then what you're doing now. So I always start these with a little color commentary. I didn't prompt you on this, but it's a little top 10 list I like to go through, get some of your feelings and views on San Antonio. Okay. All right. All right. Thank you for being here. Sure. I also want to throw in the, the reason I live in San Antonio is Michael Watts. I cold called him coming out of law school and said, I want a job. And he gave me a job and said, which city he had six offices. And I said, you pick, and he picked San Antonio. So you're the reason I live here. Well,
1: you know, I mean, with a haircut like mine, where you're completely bald, I needed some lawyers without hair. And, uh, you had a, a pretty good resume, but, man, what a great hair! You have matching hair now, though. <laughs> exactly. You used to have a little. All a little. I got to do is grow out the beard, and I'll be uh, Justin Hill. <laughs> All right, so how long have you lived in San Antonio? I uh, moved here in 2006, so going on 15 years, 14 years. All
0: right, I moved here in 07, and you had just moved here, you and your wife and kids, and sort of set up shop. Right now, we're in sort of COVID shutdown, so it's sort of a funny question, but... At our house right now, we're doing our best to support local and help some of our small businesses and help some of our small restaurants. What restaurants are you reaching out to try to help?
1: You know, it's really not restaurants. Uh, it's kind of an epic joke in my law firm that we go to Papa Nachos in Leon Springs <laughs> like four times a week because I like the margaritas. And so I'm just terrified that they're going to shut down. And so I have lunch there every day. Are they open? Uh, they are open for takeout. Okay, And, and we go in there and we uh, I ordered the same uh, chicken Diablo and... Uh, Grey Goose and soda, and Frank orders uh, some Papa Nacho salad and a, and a Don Julio Nieho with a big cube ice. They have uh, margaritas to go. <laughs> they do. Well, thanks they for do. not
0: bringing a jug of them down here. You know, that's nice.
1: – uh, I've got many political differences with Greg Abbott, but the most brilliant thing he's ever done is when he uh, – said we're going to shut down but we're going to let restaurants do their deal and and oh by the way you can take alcohol home from them and i was like we're in
0: and that's just a mess i mean there's so many laws they got to jump through and they're just kind of
1: everybody's ignoring
0: it which i appreciate
1: yeah
0: um okay so i ask everybody this question i think it's a fun question um you've got people that come to town and they say, I'm new to San Antonio. What should I, okay. The river walk in the Alamo. And then I always say there's the PhD tourist places. So the, Hey, you've done all that. You really got to go see these hidden gems in San Antonio. For me, it's the, uh, the, the, uh, Japanese tea garden, the rest of the, um, missions, the botanical garden. I mean, those are some of those things. Okay. You've done all the other stuff. You got to go check these things out. What are your hidden gems that you sort of tell people go check these things out,
1: man. I, you know, when we moved to San Antonio, uh, there's nothing more fun than going to have a a, a lunch coma at uh, some of the famous uh, touristy spots. Sure. Meteara. Uh, yeah, Meteora. I mean I've I've I mean literally we we would come down here, my wife and I would get a hotel room downtown and stay on the river walk and think we were vacationing and literally we'd go in and have lunch and, and a couple too many margaritas and sleep the afternoon away. So we nicknamed it the lunch coma. So I love that. Uh I like hanging out at the Pearl. Yeah. Uh, I think it's pretty cool, you know. Uh, and then I think some of the restaurants, uh, I mean, I mean, some of the museums that we've got, uh, I think the witty is a cool place to underrated. Yeah. I like yeah. to take kids there. Um, so, so that's fun. And then I spent a lot of time outside, uh, uh, the dominion where I live. And so a lot of stuff in the 1604 area. a lot of stuff in the rim. And then when you go out there, I mean, frankly, as you go West, um, Hill Country gets really cool in a hurry. And you know, so, I was heard the Hill
0: Country was Kerrville, and then somebody finally took me to Rock Springs, and I thought, oh, wow, this is just so different.
1: Yeah, it's pretty funny. A couple of years ago, I, I'm working on these California fire cases, and an entire town burned down in 2018, and so we set up an office there to go help these people out, and there was no housing, and there was nowhere for my staff to stay, so I bought a travel trailer. <laughs> And we moved it out there. And, of course, like a dumbass, I I paid $85,000 for this travel trailer thinking everybody would live there. But there was nowhere to hook it into. So there was no sewage, no electricity. So it was kind of a waste. But my son has kind of taken it over. And uh, he's in college right now. But uh, he's living in this travel trailer. And so I said, Brandon, you know, where are you gonna? Where are you gonna stay? And he goes, oh, all the travel trailers are picked out, you know. So nothing in, in San Antonio, and, and not even in Bernie. So so he finds this place way on the other side of Bernie. And I go visit him. Real nice place. bunch of winter Texans up there, but it happens to be in welfare up on okay. top of the hill. Yeah. To which my joke to Brandon is great. I've got a son living on welfare. You know. <laughs> so, so that's a, it's a cool spot out there. I welfare mean, right know. next to comfort, which has yeah. always been funny yeah. to me. So you got Popo's, one of the the most fattening, excellent restaurants. That's one of the special spots in San Antonio as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've never been. I've okay. never been to
0: Papa Nachos either. I don't. I don't know if I'll get there. The large at out.
1: Papa Nachos,
0: the chicken fried
1: steak at Popo's. <laughs> okay. You're living large. All right.
0: So I asked you this when I was a baby lawyer, and I remember your answer. I want to ask you now: Who's the best lawyer you ever saw in trial that made you think, just wow, you're
1: good? Man, I gotta tell you. Um, lots of fabulous trial lawyers hitting big verdicts and like that, but I think the best lawyer I've ever seen is Rusty Hardin. Okay. Uh, that's a new answer. Yeah. You know, my my daughter, um, when I was going through the criminal indictment that we're going to talk about, um, she had a friend named uh, Eugenio Duran, who's a kid that's clerk for me here and, and, you know, great friend of the family. And he was tight with the Clemens boys who both played uh, baseball at the University of Texas. And one of the Clemens boys, Casey, uh, reached out to um, – Eugenio and said, "Hey, uh, I heard what's happening to your dad. Uh, I'm the only person in America that knows what you're about to go through." Hmm. And so uh, they became our dear friends, and they watched out for my daughter and everything like that. And and so the Clemens boys—I mean, I would I would charge through a wall for them. I think they're wonderful. But in in that sense, I got to know Rusty Harden. Yeah, and. You know, I mean, I think the whole world thought that Roger Clemens was crazy testifying the way that he did and that maybe he was in trouble and da 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 da. And then one great trial lawyer and one great cross examination completely shredded that prosecution for the farce that it was. Sure. And, um, you know, I think Rusty Harden is as good as they get. Yeah. And a good friend of mine, Derek
0: Hollingsworth, did a lot of the work on that case, too. Yeah. And I mean, I got yeah. sort of some of in the inside track. But yeah, Rusty, you have not taken up his fancy suits, though. No, I'm you know. not
1: really a fancy suits kind of guy, but <laughs> but I'll tell you, I mean, I'm, I'm suing Princess Cruise Line over this COVID nineteen thing, and I've got a bunch of cases, and Rusty just signed up one of the death cases, and he calls me out of the blue, and of course, I just remember the the exhilaration um, of, of knowing that I'm going to get to work up a case with Rusty Harden, and and that's the fun thing about what I do is is working up cases with great lawyers, yeah. uh, and I don't consider that a you know a, um, a measuring stick of who's better and who's this or that, but. Getting to work with great lawyers is a thrill, and, and Rusty's certainly one
0: of them. Yeah. Uh, I will say that about you. I mean, I'm not going to say no ego. I mean, you've got incredible success, but you are always very happy to work with other lawyers and yeah. learn from them. And I've tried to implement that in my life.
1: Um, That's why they call it practicing law. I mean, all we do is plagiarize and rip off other people's techniques. Yeah, and hopefully we can let them do it for us if we got something right. I'm 30 years in, and I'm still learning. Yeah. I mean,
0: even now when I reach out to, to your firm, Michael, everybody helps me of with course. whatever I need. They better. Um, So I ask everybody, I know too much about you as opposed to some of my guests, but things I want to ask you, this is mine. I'm going to be selfish. How does faith guide your work as an attorney and a trial lawyer? I mean, you're a very faithful man, and we are an industry that is too often um, sort of put in a pigeonhole of being greedy or just crappy people generally is how people try to portray us. And how does faith guide you? How does it affect your motivations? And what do you think are the most important things that help you get through day to day as a trial lawyer uh, with your faith?
1: Well, you know, um, when I got married, I I, I really lacked faith, but I married a woman that was incredibly faithful. And and, uh, my wife runs a prayer ministry for for folks that have been uh, put through trauma, I'm going to put it politely. And um, she kind of steered me that way. And and in 1995, uh, at a Promise Keepers rally at the uh, Texas Stadium uh, in Dallas, where the Cowboys play yeah. uh, accepted Jesus Christ, my Lord and savior. And, yeah. and uh, it's an important part of my life. Uh, I don't, I don't judge people and I don't impose my faith on other people, but I do believe in a certain ethos. You don't cheat on your wife. Uh, you don't cheat on your partners. You don't steal. You don't lie. Uh, try to be honest. And, um, and, and then, you know, the, the the other thing I would say is, um, you know, to whom much is given, much is expected. and, both back in 2008 and again this quarter, um, we've got a lot of people here in San Antonio that are hurting through no fault of their own. Yeah, And I will never forget after Lehman Brothers fell off in 2008, just looking at the guys that were begging on the street corners. They looked like me and you, Justin. Yeah. I mean, there they they were guys uh, with families and kids who lost their jobs uh, through, in that case, a bunch of criminal activity from bankers, in this case because of a virus, and... Um, and I think we all, uh, as citizens of San Antonio, our, our first and highest obligation is to our fellow citizens. And and I don't know whether you saw it, but a few weeks ago, uh, the Express News had that picture of thousands of cars of outside the San yeah. Antonio food bank. And I, I've never been more motivated by a picture in my life. And so I've, tr- I've tried uh, to cause all the lawyers, uh, the trial lawyers, um, to, to step up and to help um, because uh, – there are people right here in our community through no fault of their own, they're going to go hungry they're going to run out of money uh, they're going to run out of food, uh, and we've got to help them so that that that's not necessarily faith led although it's certainly uh, you know indicative of what the gospel treats us, I mean teaches us, but um, it's damn sure something we ought to be doing sure moral compass I mean yeah, whether it's faith know. or inherent i mean it's all part there, of this same. there's a bunch of people particularly on the south side of this town, on the east side of this town, uh, that are going to get harder, uh, get hit harder by this thing than, than I am. Yeah. And I think you're an absolute jackass if you can't uh, look 10 miles away and see that people are hungry and try to do something about it.
0: Yeah. No, I, I think everybody appreciated that. You made a very large donation to the food bank. Um, you know, we've tried to help as we can, and we're helping with giving refurbished laptops to a GED program because, I mean, it sort of – transcends all things, not just food. I mean, people need to be educated and people need to be able to have something when this ends, which I'm very optimistic it's going to end. Uh, I've had people to say it's not going to end, but I'm going to believe I'm, I'm on. Well, I mean,
1: of course it's going to end it someday, but, but I'm really, really worried that, uh, a, that we're reopening too soon and we're going to have a second phase. Um, I'm a big history buff and I believe that, that we study history to avoid the mistakes of the past. And if you look at what happened in 1918 with what they call the Spanish flu, uh, which, by the way, didn't originate from Spain. Started in Kansas. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it did start in Kansas (laughs) with the United States military. Yeah. And, you know, the bottom line is all the military powers in World War One had censorship rules that you couldn't write about anything that would reflect poorly on the military. Huh. Well, yeah. Spain was neutral in World War One, so its doctors <laughs> were the only ones writing about the flu that was ravaging everybody. I didn't know that. So it was nicknamed the Spanish flu. But the, the point that I was making is, is that in the spring of 1918, you know, of course, um, it, was a, it was a bad flu. It didn't kill everybody, but it was highly infectious. And then it mutated. And... Uh, Everybody took it easy. It mutated. And then by the fall, when flu season started, it killed 150,000 Americans in one month. And so I'm very, very concerned that in the name of reopening the economy, uh, you know, for either presidential aspirations or for just economic uh, uh, good intentions, that we're going to create a second round of this in the fall that's going to be far more damaging.
0: I think everybody's in agreement that
1: there is going to be multiple rounds of this it's just how doesn't well can we be. manage it doesn't have to be i mean we've got to do the right thing i mean and, and you know i'm a huge fan of the mayor but i personally i don't i don't lobby the mayor very often um but i remember about 6 weeks before uh fiesta he still hadn't called it yeah. and he didn't want to call it and i called him up and and i said mayor you cannot take this chance i said if you create this huge you know pandemic of of people dying of uh, coronavirus because we wanted to watch a bunch of people in a parade and all you got to do is look what happened in new orleans i was in new orleans i was supposed to try a case in early march and i was in new orleans the week before mardi gras and it had one case in the entire state and then they they some dumbass made the decision to hold Mardi Gras, yeah. and now they're the third or fourth largest state, and it's all because of that event. Yeah. So so you know these people that say God will protect us and everything's great, you know God gives us free will, and we can make smart decisions or stupid decisions. And I encourage you know everybody here in San Antonio and elsewhere, uh, let's be smart about this. Let's wear the masks. Uh, let's stay isolated to the extent we can, and and learn about Zoom so that you're not psychologically yeah. isolated. Uh, talk to people over the computer, but do not put yourself in a position where you're spreading this virus because you're not only affecting yourself, you're affecting all your neighbors and your friends and your loved ones. And, you know, my biggest problem is I have a 22-year-old son that thinks he's bulletproof, same way you and I did. Yeah, But if he goes and gets infected and brings it back around my mother, who's 73 – that's not good. No, that's right. So. Um, I mean,
0: knock on wood, San Antonio has kept a lid on it a little bit so far, and I hope that keeps up. Um, I had an epidemiologist on here, and she sort of talked about the warm and cold and does that affect? And she said it might just be because more people are indoors when it's cold. And, you know, there's a lot of unknowns as to how this is going to work. Yeah. Another unknown is you're a huge Spurs fan. This is how it goes. It's up and down, yeah. Michael. Uh, you're a huge Spurs fan if the, if the, the, the season is called – should this count as a year the Spurs miss the playoffs?
1: You know, I love that. Uh, I, I, I'm I'm the world's <laughs> biggest Spurs fan. I've had front row seats forever, and uh, this is going to be the year that we're going to miss the playoffs. And now there's no playoffs, so the streak is. So alive. does it count? Yeah, no, yeah right. No, it doesn't count. <laughs> you know, and and the Spurs are the best run organization in the world. Um, and. As far as I'm concerned, it it counts about as much as Phil Jackson's asterisks next to the 1999 championship. Okay. You know, I mean, nobody's going to care. There were no playoffs, so we didn't miss it. Streak alive. Okay. I've known you for
0: the whole time I've lived here and been really a working lawyer, and I don't know the answer to this. Is there anything outside of the law that you have a weird passion about? I mean, right now I've got a big passion about doing this podcast. Are you a woodworker? I think you're a reader. What are your big passions outside of the law?
1: Yeah, you know – uh, I'm a big sports fan. I, I do love that. I love to go fishing out at my fishing cabin, uh, which is south of Baffin Bay. Uh, but I'm not very good at getting down there. My son's down there right now. Uh, <laughs> you know, he's he's properly socially distancing by himself and slaying the redfish. And I wish I was down there providing parental. He's down guidance. there solo. Uh, he's down there with a buddy. Okay, yeah, but uh, you know, I figure it's the safest place he can be. He's sure, away from everybody else. And if he wants to go catch a bunch of fish during the, it's pandemic, the middle of nowhere, let's go. Yeah, you been Are, there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, Okay, so here's an important one. Uh, Which Baylor lawyer do you prefer more, me or Hunter?
1: Oh, (laughs) so so many good choices. Yeah, you know, the truth of the matter is, I mean, I've told you this. I like hiring lawyers out of Baylor because they have a really good mock trial program. Uh, They teach uh, much more practically, uh, teach lawyers how to be lawyers. My daughter's at the University of Texas, and I love my time there, but it's more theoretical. Sure. Um, They may have... um, they may have kids. Uh, you know, it's the hardest law school in the state to get to, but it's much more theoretical. I right. Mean, it's how to be a law professor instead of how to be a lawyer. Sure. And so I have no problem hiring lawyers out of uh, Baylor. And, and frankly, uh, as between you and Hunter, I'm two for two. Uh, well, thank in you. In terms of really good lawyers uh, who, who know how to talk, uh, know how to be uh, decent people, and know how to be a hell of a lawyer.
0: Yeah, and Hunter's, I mean, Hunter listens to this, so I had to throw a jab at him in this. Hunter's
1: my my man, Yeah. You know. he, my partner, my friend, and I miss him. And uh, Hunter, if you're listening, come have a cold beer with me. I
0: mean, you know, he did throw a f- uh, France Independence Day party last year that I went to. I don't know why or what connection that is, but he said, hey, I'm throwing a Bastille Day party. And so I went to it. It was no, fun. It was great. It was all French I can wine. say is
1: Hunter's snappy dressing didn't come from Michael Watts. <laughs> yeah. <I> mean, that, <laughs> sure. that, that is a pretty boy from the standpoint of uh, good dressing and, and fabulous shoes and crazy socks. Uh, I don't know where you got that. Not from me. Yeah. Do you uh, do any Fiesta stuff? You know what? I was. It's funny. Um, we were going to hold a big Fiesta party uh, today. I mean, this year, and um, we had it planned, and we were inviting a hundred lawyers and like that. And Frank, that's weird.
0: Like, Mine must have got lost in the mail. I no, guess. no, no.
1: I don't think we the invites ever went out because they were about to. And I told Frank, "Are you crazy?" Of course, I was talking to the mayor already about cancer, sure. the whole thing, and and he wasn't taking it seriously. And and Frank and I had a Completely different initial reaction to it. And I think it's because I've spent so much time out in San Francisco. And literally in early March, I was out there working on the Cal Fire steel, and I took a BART train, Bay Area Rapid mm. Transit, and it was empty. Sure. And that's that city is constantly flooded, and it was, like, deserted. And I went back, and I said, Frank, I know you don't believe me, but this is going to get bad. Yeah. This this state's about to shut down. He goes, no way, da 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 so they're talking about this invite to the fiesta party sponsored by Watts Garrett. I said it's never going to happen. Yeah. Watch, you know, and of course it didn't. November though, what, what's in November? Well, fiesta has been rescheduled. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, well, I think I, I think there's a shot that we're up in November.
0: Well, you're going to get a Justin Hill uh, podcast fiesta medal, the Alamo Hour fiesta I love medal it. as I love a, it. A, a parting gift. Okay, uh,
1: what we're going to get into the meat. What do you love most about living in San Antonio? You know. To me, it's the best uh, small, big town in America. And what I mean by that is, is that when I was in Corpus Christi, it was kind of politically divided, and people, there was a lot of side about if it wasn't my deal, I didn't want anybody else to have it. From the very minute I moved to San Antonio in August of 2006, whenever there was a new commercial success that came to the town, some deal, what I learned is is nobody cared whose deal it was. It was better for the city. Sure. And so there's this collegiality. There's just there's esprit de corps to this town that is very unique. Uh, and I've always said the other thing about San Antonio is it, is it lives its life inside the hash marks. When I got here, about half the judges were Democrat, half the judges were Republican. The Democrats weren't crazy far left. The Republicans weren't crazy far Right. It wasn't about political ideology, it was about what was good for the city. Yeah. And and I like that a ton. Um I like the fact that it's a can do city. Uh, it's the only city that I know in America that consistently votes for bond campaigns to to use the, the collective purchasing power of the city to to do good works yeah. and to do things like extending the river walk Salado by the yeah. yeah. All this stuff. Yeah. Roads, boy, yeah. what a constant you know, what a crazy idea that we would have yeah. good roads. Uh, I go back to my hometown of Corpus, and the roads are just like something out of a 1950s ruler. Yeah. It's nuts. Or Houston. You know, I mean, so so you've got to con- continue to invest in your infrastructure. Uh, so I think that's the best thing about San Antonio. Uh, my impression is the developers got ahead of the investment in terms of the infrastructure. I mean, all that 281, 1604 stuff yeah. was just a mess. I think we're catching up. But but it's a great city, and I'm proud to be a member of it. Well, I'm glad you're here and I'm glad you get to talk about it because there's Cause a lot I like of, to say I'm, I'm not from here, but I got here as soon as I could. Well, same yeah. for me
0: <laughs> and I ain't going to leave. We'll way. Okay. So I told you beforehand, I want to talk to you about multiple things. Uh, well, I know you've done one podcast. How many podcasts have you done? Uh, this is my second or third. Okay. Ever. Well, the one I listen to is real lawyer based. I want to talk about that, but I want to talk about that in terms of sure. um, people. I mean, yeah. you're one of the people that lives in San Antonio. I want to expose uh, sort of San Antonio to some of our more unique citizens. So I want to talk to you about some things. I cold called you coming out of law school because when I was doing my research, I could go work at a silk stocking, big building law firm that had no identity, or I could go work for the guy who was taking on car manufacturers. And I had a very personal relationship with that issue. And I thought, hell, I'm just going to call him and see what happens. You had spent a lot of your early career taking on car manufacturers for what are called crashworthiness claims. And those are that cars are going to get in wrecks. You know, they're going to get in wrecks. So make them safe as possible to, to handle those wrecks. Uh, you had done Ford, uh, Chrysler liftgate by the time I worked for you was the very end of Ford Firestone. So I want to talk to you. You've just done so many important pieces of litigation in American history, especially in the last 30 years. Um, let's talk about some of the cases that have been the most important to you personally. And I mean, personally, like when I worked for you, I got to work on that bus case. It was so important to me personally. From learning my clients, learning the law, gaining confidence. There was just so many parts of that case that were so important to me. Becoming a lawyer that I am today. Talk to me about some of the cases that were really important to you personally.
1: You know, the cool thing about the law is you can take the poorest among us and take on the richest among us in a courtroom, and you're equal. All you need is a lawyer that will fight for you. And you know, with, with respect to the car stuff, I mean, I was fortunate enough to go work for a guy named David Perry who uh, made his fame in the Pinto post-collision fuel-fed fire litigation. So that's really all I did the first five five years is represent people whose, whose family members were burned alive in rearing collisions. It was just outrageous it's because the car makers put the fuel tank behind the rear axle and you'd have a rearing collision and it would go up in flames. It was stupid. Uh, so we got that fixed. All the fuel tanks were put in safe locations. And then we did, you know, Side impact, so all the doors now have bars that go along to, to provide a little bit more rigidity. We did frontal impact, and we did roof crush. Uh, so, so we went all around the car, and now most cars have you know, six, seven, eight airbags in them. It's real hard to die in a car wreck unless you're completely drunk or unbelted. And so I'm proud of that. Uh, we put ourselves out of business. Uh, now, you know, cars are more expensive, and I get that criticism, but, but the bottom line is they're safe, uh, by and large. Uh, I got out of the car automotive product stuff, with some exceptions, about ten years ago, and I, and I remember it about 2008, I, t- I turned to my partners. And I said, "We need to get a new gig because the cars we've we complained about everything we could possibly complain about." our lawsuits have caused those to be put into the car and they're safe. Yeah. And, and I'm real proud of that. I am. I mean, you could go through your car, any car, and I could show you 15 safety features that weren't there when I started that are there now because of lawsuits by me and other good lawyers across the United States that forced the car companies to make it safe so that when we have a crash, it's not a death sentence.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, even I do that. And I know, a th- you know, 5% of what you know, and I look at a car and think of all those things um, outside of sort of, Crashworthiness. Um, Talk to me about just some of the individual pieces of litigation and, and I'm going to be selfish about it a little bit, like maybe not some of the mass actions, but some of the individual yeah. cases where you represented, because look, if you've read King of Torts, I mean, there, there's the guy who's the one-off guy. There's the guy who's the mass guy. You've been both. I mean, you were the guy who represented individuals and now you do a lot of mass work as well. Um, talk to me about some of the individual cases that really affected you as a person and made you a different lawyer.
1: Sure. So, so when I was a young lawyer, uh, I represented a kid named Ruben Contreras, who was from Beeville, Texas. And he came into Corpus Christi where I was from and played Cal Allen, uh, high school JV game. And in the fourth quarter, loaded his neck, uh, broke his neck in a football tackle. And what we learned is is he had a crazy heavy helmet called the Bike Air Power Football Helmet, and it was a complete marketing gimmick that we would blow up and create these cushions, and it would protect people I remember. from head injuries. It had nothing to do I wore one in high school. You probably yeah. did too. It was a complete marketing scam. It didn't prevent head injuries, but it added a ton of weight. So generally you had underdeveloped kids uh, that in the fourth quarter would get tired, and they would lower their neck through no fault of their own. And, and put the head and the, and the neck and the body into alignment, where it was like a spear, and they'd break their neck. Um, my favorite case ever is I got that kid, Ruben Contreras, a ton of money, but about six weeks later, I got a call from a lawyer in Austin. And two years minus a day before, some kid in Lubbock named Jerome Moore had broke his neck. And they said, hey, this has been through seven law firms. Uh, will you take a look at this? I said, sure. When did it happen? And I realized I had 12 hours to file the <laughs> lawsuit. Fortunately, I had the template, but I don't usually file lawsuits without thoroughly investigating it. But I said, you know what, there's a quadriplegic I haven't met yet in Lubbock, Texas, who's counting on me. So I filed his lawsuit sight unseen, uh, and then I flew to Lubbock and met with him, and he was dying. Uh, He was literally in the project, Section 8 housing, no medical care because it had run out, and he was a quadriplegic who was going to die very quickly. So we stabilized him. Uh, We worked on the case for two years. Uh, We got him a a result of many millions of dollars. Um, And the most satisfying thing that I've ever had is he's the world's biggest Cowboys fan, as am I. And I bought him a big screen TV, which is as good as you can do. Uh, And he is now a mid-40 guy who's a quadriplegic that goes into the uh, trauma centers and counsels other quadriplegics. Wow. I know that but for his lawyer, he would have been dead at the age of 16, and now he is counseling a whole bunch of people and keeping them from from dying uh, from what is the most serious injury that I can imagine, quadriplegia. So that's my favorite case
0: ever. Life expectancy for people that have quadriplegia, if you don't have
1: the best medical care, is not good. Yeah, but but that's that's the difference, right? So my second favorite case is a lady um, that I was hired in 2000 Uh, It was the start of the Ford Firestone. Firestone tires uh, had a bunch of bad tires that, frankly, were ordered by Ford uh, to take out a bunch of uh, structure to lower the center of gravity of Ford Explorers. And so what you had was a a crappy tire that came apart in the heat, and then you had an Explorer that was too top-heavy that rolled over very easily. And so Donna Bailey, who was from my hometown in Corpus Christi, um, there was a tire detread. The Ford Explorer rolled over. The roof crushed in on her. She was a ventilator-dependent quadriplegic. I shouldn't say it was because she's still alive. Uh, we settled her case in 2001 for a confidential amount, but the bottom line is an extraordinary amount of money. Uh, and I say that not to brag, but we got her enough money to take care of her for the rest of her life, 24 hours a day. She has around-the-clock nursing care. Um and she's still alive. I want
0: to share a story. You told me about her. You ran into her at a restaurant years later, and she was l- enjoying her life having margaritas.
1: She She's awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is the most positive attitude person. She she literally, for 20 years, has lived out of a ventilator, but she's still alive because she has a, a zest for life. She has care, uh, and she deserves everything she does. She's taken her care providers on vacations to Cozumel. Uh, she goes out. Good for her. Uh, yeah, she she uh, has a social life. Um, she's she's the strongest person I've
0: ever met. And, I mean, for so many people that have a less uh, hardship who have a hard time getting up, it's 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 good to see people like that who've got the hardest of the hardships who are getting
1: out. She she For 20 years, she hadn't breathed by herself, but she's living more life than most of us do because she's got a heart of gold. Good and, for her. And I'm proud to keep her alive.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's one thing that I think uh, people – don't understand that when people get good lawyers and get good representation, it changes their lives a lot of times. And yes, we make money, but the important part is Donna Bailey's out having margaritas, even though she's a ventilated quad and not in a nursing home, you know I mean? It's a, it's
1: yeah.
0: Or dead. Um, As it relates to those cases, um, because I want to talk to you about personally, because I know some of the cases you've done, how they've literally changed the way we live our day-to-day lives. But what are those, you know, we talked about Donna Bailey, we talked about Jerome Moore. Um, How did they change you as a lawyer? How did they change the way you approach uh, the practice of law?
1: Well, what you realize is uh, practicing law is not just about money. You, as a trial lawyer, can be the difference between life and death. You can be the difference between it happening again and it never happening again. Um, you know, uh, I do a lot of pharmaceutical defect cases uh, where drugs that are rushed to the market harm people. Uh, one of my favorite clients is a lady by the name of Margarita Sanchez. She's, she's since passed away, but her liver was destroyed by a bad drug called Resilin. I tried her case in uh, 2002 or 2003, we got this extraordinary result. Um, and again, enough money to take care of her, but the, the drug was pulled, which is great. Uh, what my favorite thing is, and, and now that I'm an old fart, uh, I tend to get into cases where you can make a difference not only to the plaintiff but to everybody else. For example, back in the Firestone cases, uh, a lady by the name of Vicki Hendricks, her, her 18-year-old boy died in one of these rollovers. And we were at a mediation, and, of course, I'm not known for – demanding an insufficient amount of money, right? I mean, I'm pretty, <laughs> pretty bold, but this lady looked at me. and She goes, I'm never settling this case. I don't care how much money until they recall this tire. And I looked at her. and said, ma'am, look, this is a civil justice system. Most I can get you is money. They're never going to recall this tire. She goes, well, I'm not settling the case. And we blew up the mediation. And by the time we got done, uh, there were 17 million tires recalled because of Vicki Hendrix, which is awesome. Yeah, good for her. You know, And then in, in terms of everyday people, I think it's important for lawyers uh, to have a pro bono case, a case you're doing for free at all times. Um, and you know, one of my favorite clients ever is a lady by the name of um, Kelly Knight. And a lot of you guys know Tom Henry. He had rejected her case, not being critical of him, uh, about three days before her statute of limitations ran. And she wheeled herself into my office crying uh, on the day of her statute of limitations, uh, which was two years after the date she was rendered a paraplegic, but when I heard her story, um, her boyfriend was kind of one of these guys that beats up people, got mad at her, and threw her off of a second floor balcony, which fractured her spine, rendering her a lifetime paraplegic, and so I took her case, pro bono, said I wouldn't charge her, Um, we tried the case against this bastard that threw her over, um, and she won a $144 million judgment. When was this? 2002 or three. Uh, she never recovered a dollar, yeah. but the guy's been sitting in prison for a while. And like that. He's got a judgment. We still chase him. She'll never get a dollar. But but having a jury of her peers tell her that this man needed to be punished because uh, he had a good lawyer that got him out of a lot of criminal stuff uh, was the most rewarding client day of my life. She she was so thankful. Still a friend of hers on Facebook. But, you know, I'm thinking about those ladies uh, and, and – There was no bigger Bill Cosby fan than Michael Watts. I think he's the funniest guy I've ever seen. You know, (laughs) the story about telling his kids that, you know, in in his day he walked to school six miles uphill both ways. I mean, he was so talented, but he was also a serial rapist that used uh, drugs to incapacitate women. Uh, He deserved what he got in the same way that Harvey Weinstein deserved what he got. And I can't look myself in the eye as somebody who has a wife uh, that had an experience uh, that was difficult, a daughter who I'm trying to raise as a strong woman. And so I I think the law in defense of women's rights uh, is important. And then the other area that that obviously is very personal to me now is is, uh, uh, the rights of criminals uh, or suspected criminals uh, in our criminal justice system. Uh, I try to keep one of those cases going pro bono. And let me just tell you a story. Uh, back in about 2006, I got a call uh, from this right here from a federal judge. Can pull it down, um, and um, it was Jan Jack in Corpus Christi, Texas. Uh, and she said, "Hey, I'm appointing you to represent so and so." And I was like, Ugh. "And you know, we've all gotten that call where a judge tells you you're going to do it, and you can't say no." And so I was upset about that. Uh, but anyway, the, the case turned out it was a guy who was serving life in prison. Uh, his name was Cyril Damas. Um, and, and he was convicted of um, in effect rape, although he didn't do it. Uh, he was in the car uh, as an accessory to rape when somebody was burglarizing a house, and whoever his high school buddy was raped this lady. and so they were both convicted of rape. and this guy that was sitting in the car outside was was sentenced to life in prison uh, while he was in the Beeville penitentiary. Um, He apparently turned in some guy that was bringing drugs into the prison. Um, Turned out the guy was bringing drugs into the prison at the behest of the warden. And so he filed what's called a 1983 (laughs) case, a civil rights case, because he got stabbed 17 times for being a snitch. Um, And the federal judge, Jen Jack, got so pissed off at the attorney general of the state of Texas uh, for the way they were acting, she said, I'm going to hire the best lawyer I know to defend this guy. And she calls me up. So we end up, we try his case. Uh, it took me three days. We got an actual damages verdict and a punitive damages verdict for a guy serving life in prison against a warden. When was this? It was probably, probably 2006. <laughs> so the Fifth Circuit takes it away. It turned into a complete waste of time, I thought. And then after my criminal law experience, I get a call, and it's from Cyril And I'm like, well, how could he be out? He's serving life in prison. We served 25 years and was let out on parole. Um And the bottom line is, is that uh, I went to meet Ciro in Houston, and they were trying to register him as a sex offender, even though he was sitting in the car outside. So I took on his case pro bono. Uh, It took me five hearings. Uh, We won against the Bureau of Prisons or the Bureau of whatever. Uh, So he's not registered as a sex offender because he never was. Uh, The guy got married. He told me during the last hearing, he goes, you know why I know so much about the law? I said, no. He goes, because those three days you spent with me in 2006. He goes, I was a little vato. I mean, all I did was care about the gang life. And he said, I, I got rid of that. I went to high school while I was in prison. I went to college while I was in prison. And I got a paralegal license. Good for him. And Cyril, Cyril Adamus, uh married somebody who stood by him and now lives in San Antonio, Texas. And a paralegal in this town, and as good a guy uh. as, as anybody you've ever met, but he had a lawyer that stuck up with him, you know, for him, and now he's a contributing member of, of this town who nobody should be worried about. He got completely shafted by a bad lawyer when he was 17 years sure. old, sitting out in a car. So my point is, is our criminal justice system is full of people like that. I don't care whether you're a 17-year-old punk named Cyril Adamas or you're a state senator named Carlos Suresti, who some guy decides he's going to take a scalp, um, I have, as you know, sincere doubts uh, that my friend Carlos Uresti, who's serving 12 years in a federal penitentiary, deserves to spend a day there. Yeah. Um, but but what everybody needs is a lawyer. I agreed to be his lawyer for free and was disqualified, which breaks my heart. But um, two good men that, that should have never been uh, put through the criminal justice Well, system. I think that's
0: important to talk about because if somebody Googles Michael Watts, some of the articles that pop up are going to be your representation of, of Senator Uresti, Carlos Uresti. Um, I also... I mean, to give some color to this, I mean, you didn't just represent Carlos. I mean, you go visit him in prison now. Yeah, I mean, I do. you stay in touch with him. I mean, he's a friend of yours. You did your best, um, and the judge
1: disqualified you. Um, <clears throat> why did you agree to take on Carlos's case? Some of it was. I mean, after my case, um, and, and we haven't said it yet, but I got indicted for 95 counts of Uh, conspiracy, identity theft, uh, aggravated identity theft, mail fraud, wire fraud, uh, involving the BP litigation. Um, Didn't do it. It was very confusing, very discombobulating, very upsetting that uh, you are tried in the court of public opinion. You're convicted in the court of public opinion before you ever have your day in court. Everybody just thinks you're screwed because otherwise why would they come after you? So... um, um, in 2013, my offices were raided right here in San Antonio, um, and I became a pariah for two and a half, three years. And then, when we didn't think it, anything was going to happen uh, because we didn't do it, uh, a U.S. Senator from Wisconsin, Ron Johnson, the head of the Homeland Securities Committee, thought it was part of his uh, charge to tell the Attorney General of the United States, hey, Michael Watts is a Big contributor to Democrats, had Obama at his house, uh, is a ready-for-Hillary guy, gives a lot of money. That's why you're not indicting him. You should indict him. This is right after Loretta Lynch was on the airplane with Bill Clinton, so she recused herself. So some local United States attorney from Mississippi trying to make a name for himself says, I'm going to indict this big trial lawyer, and I'm going to take him down. So all of a sudden, I'm indicted, uh, you know you are tried and convicted in the court of public opinion. And then I mean, when, when you finally get your day in court, it was nonsense. We didn't do it. Um, Representing myself against the might and the weight of the United States government, and it was a debacle for them. I mean, it wasn't even a fair fight. I know I'm supposed to brag about how I beat Clarence Darrow himself, <laughs> but it was a joke.
0: But well, let's go back a second, if you don't mind. I mean, look, I worked for you, and I think I left in October. I think the, f- the raids happened in February. Mm-hmm. You know, we kind of heard bits and pieces. And I mean, I'll agree with, I mean, I do agree with you. It becomes this weird public opinion thing where you just hear every, you get this weird mix mash of people who want you to win and he's the best. And then people are like, oh yeah, he's terrible. I mean, it, it really was strange. I mean, just cause I knew you personally to hear sort of the hubbub, what was sort of look, man, what was the personal experience of being no, indicted it, by the feds? It was devastating.
1: I mean, number one, um, you realize that you have a lot fewer friends, true friends than you thought you had. Sure but you have a lot better friends than you thought you had. So in other words, while you think you're friends with 500 people, you're really friends with five or six. Those five or six rise up, and, uh, you know, those are the guys that you want to run through a wall with. And so we did that. And then, you know, one of the great things that I'm proud of is I had 130 people that worked for me at the time. Not one of them left. Um, Our our friend Hunter uh, left the firm, but in a completely amicable fashion. We're very good friends to this day. And and I'm really proud of that. Um, he was leaving separate and apart. Yeah, no, nah, yeah. I mean, she's a great lawyer. Uh, going to do his own thing. But but the point is, is that um, you know people st- stood by me, uh, and that was rewarding. And then when you finally get your day in court, <laughs> you know I thought it was going to be this complete and total nationally covered exoneration, <laughs> and thirty five uh, members of the press are there for opening statement, and they all go home. Huh? It's just bizarre. So so. What really happens is people think, oh, that rich guy got off, but they don't understand that the charges themselves were nonsense. Yeah. So it's one of the reasons that uh, I did something crazy during that trial. Uh, I hired a film crew. We shot 700 hours of video every night in the car to and from courthouses, uh, interviewed ourselves because I want to do a, a, a video documentary on Netflix to, to show people what it's like uh, for an American citizen to be falsely indicted by his government uh, and to tell the story. Because if you don't tell the story, it'll happen again and again. So we're writing books, we're doing a movie, Um, and we're going to tell the story, and we're going to advocate for criminal justice reform because what they did was outrageous.
0: And just to provide some background, this is the 10th anniversary of the BP um, explosion. I'll post the Atlantic article. I mean, it's a public. You don't have any problem with me posting the article. It gives a sort of background of what what happened and sort of what the next thing was. BP explosion happened. You represented a bunch of uh, fishermen, and then it turned out that the people that were helping you sign up cases were not doing that, but they were taking your money. Indicted for representing people that turned out to not be real clients.
1: Some of them. Some of them were, but the bottom line is I got stolen from, and then the guys that stole from me made up uh, Social Security numbers and the like, stole Social Security numbers, and then everybody just assumed that I was involved, which I
0: wasn't. Yeah, the Atlantic article did a really good job of sort of lining out how much money they took from you. So, I mean, the the guys that ended up going to prison uh, enriched themselves personally from your pocket to the tune of a couple million bucks. More like 10. But,
1: yeah. <laughs> I wasn't going to say it. Yeah, it, was, it was fun. You get, you get robbed of $10 million and then get indicted by your government for being stolen from.
0: So. Yeah. Um, so the raids happen, then a big break in time, then the indictment happens, and um, Once you got indicted, what was sort of the, I mean, because I know it was all hands on deck, how did you proceed to take on the feds? Because early on you were represented. So before that, what was your sort of strategy and how did you plan to go about it? I mean, obviously you didn't do it. You were acquitted, but the full force and might of the federal government coming after you is a pretty heady thing. And you've got to
1: really kind of batten down and figure out how you want to go about it. Yeah, the the entire United States Secret Service. I mean, I always thought they just defended the president, but they also do financial crimes, and and they are sorry. Uh, They investigated, uh, they interviewed over 1,600 people. They spent over 10 million. Wait, they investigated 1,600 people on your case? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they spent over $10 million trying to get Michael Watts. But the bottom line is it takes one opportunistic federal prosecutor. In this case, the guy's name was John Dowdy. His family came from political, you know, this or that. He's in Mississippi. I'm sure he wanted to be governor. He's got a safe target, a, a, a trial lawyer from out of state. Um, um, you know, President Obama had been at my house for a fundraiser in the summer of 2012, and those guys were just fixated on the idea that that I was an Obama guy. And so, what they did is they raided my offices. They lied to witnesses. Uh, told people I'd stolen their money uh, when I didn't even have any money. The settlement hadn't even happened yet. Uh, they played all sorts of games. Um, in, in the federal rules of uh, procedure, they got to tell you what their trial exhibits are going to be. And it's, instead of telling me what they're going to be, they dumped 42 boxes and 4 million pages of documents and said, go find them. Fortunately, I had the resources to do it. I had 18 people working around the clock. Um, and... They said, oh, yeah, we're going to use them all. And then over a five-week trial, there were 152 exhibits used. But I had to spend nine months, millions of dollars, reading through a bunch of junk. And then they withheld a bunch of stuff. There's a doctrine in the law known as Brady uh, where they have to provide you with exculpatory information. Um, They withheld all of that. Um, And so they played all sorts of games that were just outrageous. And it's hard to imagine that here in the United States that happens. But I am convinced that while they're – You know, the prisons have plenty of people that are guilty. Uh, They're also full of people that either got screwed by the government or just didn't have the resources to fight the considerable might of the government. Yeah, I mean, I don't think people realize
0: how much latitude a federal prosecutor is given to do what they want to do. I mean, if they decide they want to go after somebody, they get an investigatory arm, they get a budget, and they get to do
1: it. Yeah, and then most of them have judges that completely just look the other way. Some some judges get after them, but... uh, You know, my judge, we complained, we complained, complained. It was like we weren't even there. He was a former prosecutor. But to be fair, uh, once that trial started, he gave me a fair trial. And and I thank the Lord every day for Louis Garola because for five and a half weeks, he treated me with dignity during that trial. uh, And I wrote him a letter afterwards telling him that. Did he respond? Uh, No, but uh, I did hear that. uh, He got it. He got it. and He was pleased to get it, uh, but but I mean he's a he's an honorable guy.
0: So let's uh, talk about some of the games they play. I mean they had to give you their trial
1: exhibits thirty days before trial. Is that correct? Supposed to, but they said basically it's you know four million pages of documents. Yeah, they right. Put one hundred and fifty two documents into evidence. It was ridiculous. And
0: there's no recourse for that. I mean that's the crazy thing. I mean they also indicted your brother. They indicted some people from your law firm. Um, I mean, and they moved venue
1: on you. Yeah. Uh, so. You know, what they try to do is they try to indict everybody in your family so you'll fold. Uh, one of the hardest conversations I ever had was telling my big brother, who did nothing wrong, who was indicted solely for the offense of being Michael Watts' brother, uh, that I'm not going to fold. Um, and I'm sorry that you're having to go through this, but you're going to have to ride the rail with me. And, and that sucked because he didn't do anything wrong. Uh, One of my paralegals, who did nothing more than send a file, a computer file that I told her to send to a law firm in Chicago, was indicted. You know, they were just trying to put pressure on people uh, to roll over and help them prove a false case against Michael Watts. And to their great credit, uh, you know, all of my employees, former employees, um, they stood tall and told told the truth.
0: And I don't really know what I'm allowed to ask and not ask, but there's a lot of hubbub. Did they ever try to cut a deal with you or try to get, you know, hey, we'll be...
1: That's where I give my wife a lot of credit. My wife is a black and white, right or wrong person, and I never even had to ask. Um, You know, with 95 counts and aggravated identity theft that is a mandatory two-year concurrent sentence, if if they ran the table on me, I was in jail for the rest of my life. Uh And... They're, you know, that's the other problem. People hear about a 98% conviction rate. Well, it's because a whole bunch of people fold because they're out of money. Their money is seized. They've got co-employees rolling on them left and right because they're fearful, you know. And so my wife said, we're not pleading anything. You didn't do it. I know you didn't do it. Uh, and so you're literally riding the rail knowing that if you're wrong, you go to jail for the rest of your life. Um, but I had great faith. I've been in front of so many juries. Juries. They get it right. Yeah, I mean, tw- there, there was no better BS detector ever invented than 24 eyes of your fellow citizens looking at evidence. Yeah. And, and, and in this case, you asked about, you know, games that they were playing. I mean, the bottom line is I was indicted by a grand jury in Jackson, Mississippi, which is a heavily Democratic area. This is where the prosecutors got too cute. You know, they knew I was a big uh, ready for Hillary, Obama giver, big Democratic giver. So I think they made the judgment, we got to get it the hell out of Jackson. So they indicted me uh, and placed it in front of a federal judge in Gulfport, which is the most Republican county in the state of Mississippi. And When I worked for you, we had a case in Gulfport. Yeah. Well, Gulfport's a great t- yeah. case. But, you know, bottom line is they were playing games, and um, it's one of the great testaments of the American jury system that that I had a jury of 11 of 12 uh Consistent Republican primary voters. All you had to do was Google Michael Watts and yeah. see I was on the other side. And these people, um, you know, sat there for four and a half weeks, looked at all the evidence, did the right thing, rendered their verdict, uh, convicted the people that did it, uh, and then, you know, a lot of them are going to be in the in the documentary. Yeah, uh, uh, four or five of them are Facebook friends <laughs> was, with me. I was gonna. I mean, I've they're got just that the best guys. Yeah. I mean, they're the best people ever. I mean, Joey McQueen. Uh, you know, I mean, a bunch of folks. Uh, I mean, they're just my dearest of friends now, and they, they were my liberators. Uh, but we have, we have no shared political ideology, yeah. and, and we all know it. They're big Trumpists, and I tease them about sure. it, but I love them, and I'll be at their funerals. And, and you know, <laughs> I mean, I th- just think it's, it's the greatest thing in the world about America, regardless of what your political ideology is. My experience has been when you bring jurors in and you present facts to them, to a T, they rise to the occasion, they try to do the right thing.
0: Did they did the fed I mean so I had look I worked for you so everybody in the legal world would ask me questions about your case like I knew anything about I didn't know anything about it um but I did know that if you pled to a felony even one felony you probably lose your your law you license absolutely lose yeah, your law right? right. license So did they offer anything I mean did they no, ever I, I, get down I to like I made it
1: clear um when I showed up I looked the guy right in the eye I said don't even talk to me about plea bargains cuz I'm not pleading to yeah. shit Yeah and that's what I told him Good right for you face. Said, and oh, by the way, you're going to be embarrassed you ever bought these charges. I mean, I
0: tell people, like, if you're not a lawyer, you don't really understand. Representing yourself is the dumbest thing you can do, sort of, in our industry. We joke, you know, if you so represent says Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, right. You have a fool for a client. Um, you not only represented yourself, uh, you were fully exonerated on, by the time I went to trial, what, 60 felonies?
1: 66. And so was my brother, and so was Winter Lee, my paralegal. So 198 not guilties in a row. And you were
0: already, you know,
1: look, you were fully established as a
0: legend in our profession prior to this. And I just joke like that's a different echelon representing yourself against the feds on 66 felonies and walking it. I mean, it's, it's, you have to be a lawyer and be in the legal industry to sort of understand the import of what that is. When you decided to represent yourself, everybody obviously told you you're an idiot to do do. that. Yeah.
1: Right. (laughs) But I mean, look, to be honest, I mean, you you could strike it up to you know some slick trial lawyer that talked his way out of a jam, but, but it really helped that we didn't do it. Yeah, I mean, all all the good lawyer in the world. I, I tell people, great civil trial lawyers do not turn defeats into victories; they turn victories into big victories. Sure. And in in this case, I didn't win because I was the best lawyer in the court. And I won because we didn't do it. Yeah, and we proved it. And I think it was important. You, you you've made that reference multiple times, and things I've
0: heard you say in interviews that representing yourself allowed you to talk directly to a jury.
1: That's why I did it. Yeah, it wasn't an ego play. It was a it was a thought that if they saw me arguing my case every day, it would humanize me over the course of four and a half weeks. And it turned out to be a good move. I mean, I wouldn't recommend it for a whole lot of people. <laughs> not because they're not Michael Watts. It's just in that particular case, the, the theory was I committed fraud to get on a committee that I wouldn't otherwise be on. You know, the prosecutors just didn't do their work. I mean, the bottom line is, is that, that we showed uh, that I'd been on a bunch of those committees. We showed that I'd run a bunch of those yeah. committees. And the fact that, that the jury saw that I was a real lawyer... Help too.
0: And John Dowdy, who indicts you, he decides to split uh, right before you go to trial, right?
1: Yeah, he quit. I mean, you know, I, I think what happened is, is that it's so typical for these guys to roll over everybody, indict the brother, indict the paralegal, get everybody all, you know, scared to death. They all plead uh, because they can't afford to do it. You know, so I had to bankroll a lot of defenses, which sure. wasn't any fun. So that's unusual. Uh, but Mike McCrum, a local lawyer. Oh, my God. I mean, Mike McCrum was, you know, people say, oh, Watts represented himself. That's bullshit. I mean, Mike McCrum told me every, I mean, he was the boss. Okay. When I tried to do something, he just whacked me on the, you know, the knuckles like one of those.
0: Well, I don't uh, say it's bullshit, but when people's like, he represented, I say, nah, he's also got Mike nah. McCrum He's one of the Mike, best. In, yeah.
1: Mike McCrum was my best choice. Uh, you know, bottom line, he's one of the great criminal trial lawyers in Texas. Yeah. And. And the best thing that ever happened is I had a couple of friends that recommended him, and he was in trial three days after my officers were raided. And I uh, I, investig- I, mean, I I mean, went down and watched him in trial, and he just eviscerated somebody on cross-examination. And, uh, and I was like, that's my guy. Yeah. And now he's my very good friend. If anybody got in a jam, uh, you know, I'd tell him, hire Mike McCrum. If you can I mean, afford it. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, he ain't cheap, but he's worth it. You know.
0: Okay, so now you've sort of taken up the mantle of criminal justice reform. Um, Two minutes? Two minutes. Okay. Um, yeah. You've sort of taken up the, the mantle of criminal justice reform. What are some of the things you're doing um, to try to help the, the criminal justice system?
1: Well, I mean, there's three things. I mean, the plan was that Hillary Clinton was going to win and then we'd do a bunch of criminal justice reform in 2017. Well, obviously Trump lost. I mean, Trump won. Um, you know, his son-in-law, uh, Jared Kushner, his father was rightfully or wrongfully convicted and spent time in federal prison. So there has been some good stuff. Trump passed what's called the First Step Act, uh, which reduced some of these crazy sentences. So, so that was good. But by and large, we're, we're writing a book. Uh, we're doing a film documentary. The Presidential election will be over. And I'm working real hard to elect Joe Biden. Winner of the book uh, and... Uh, movie coming out the, the book's ready the movie's not we're working through it but but the bottom line is is you're not going to get a lot of what i call criminal procedural reform uh unless and until um you know joe biden's elected president which i think is about to happen
0: i think so too michael uh you've got a call to get on um thank you for being here whenever the book or documentary comes out will you come back on absolutely okay you can have more miller light when you come back on. that <laughs> sounds good buddy. okay that about does it for this episode of the alam Um, a huge thanks to Michael Watts for coming here. He's got a million things going on. The fires, the jewel cases, um, the, the COVID princess cruise line cases. I mean, all the major torts Watts is involved. His website's Wattsgarra.com Um, on our next episode, we're going to be talking, um, with another local lawyer who's sort of taken up the mantle of representing the sort of underrepresented non-English speaking Spanish workers in town and around South Texas. And it's going to be an interesting discussion to talk about a, a young immigrant who came up as a plaintiff's lawyer, and now he's taken on the mantle of representing, um, other immigrants. Our guest wish list continues. Michael, I mean, if you can get Coach Pop to come on here, I'd love you. You know, you know. <laughs> so, guest wish list continues. Coach Pop, Robert Rivard's coming on already. He's already agreed to that. Jackie Earl Haley, we'd love to get you on. Uh, and Ron Nirenberg. Hey, I mean, I've reached I'm out to again. you. Yeah, I mean, he's doing a great I'm job. Wrote about my trial. Yeah, he was sort of doing Every a daily day. thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Robert's coming on early May. Uh, he's already agreed to do that. He was original wish list and maybe I'll ask him about it. There you go. So that does it for this episode. Thank you, Michael. Um, This will be posted soon, and uh, we'll see you next time. All right, buddy. Thank you for
1: having me on. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Alamo Hour. You are all what make this city so great. We hope you join us next week. In the meantime, subscribe to our podcast. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash Hour or our website, alamohour.com. Until next time, viva San Antonio.